0: Welcome to episode 7 of season 12 of the Growing Empires show. Today I'm here with my special guest, Matthew Pizon from Pizon Properties and the Real Estate Lab, and we're going to talk about metrics to gauge your assets performance as well as planning those exit strategies. So stay tuned. Welcome to Growing Empires, hosted by real estate entrepreneur and trusted investment advisor Jennifer De Jesus. Growing Empires provides insight to building wealth through passive income-producing real estate investments for those who want to build and manage a more profitable real estate portfolio. Well, welcome back to the Growing Empire Show. I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to kick off this episode with you sharing a little bit about the work that you're doing with the Real Estate Lab and also personally.
1: Yeah, Jen, and thanks so much for having me. Um, I just want to say before we get started, I'm super excited to join your podcast. Um, It's been a true pleasure working with you and your team over the years. So thank you so much for all of you do for um, our portfolios and for the community as well. So I just want to say thank you before we start.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Yep. So um, to your question about background, um, I'm originally from the Lehigh Valley. I went to Lafayette College, and I completed degrees not related to real estate. I did chemical engineering and Spanish degrees. I never intended to get involved in real estate. It just wasn't something that my family or historically um, my family had done or that I thought was possible for me. So after I graduated, I went to work for an industrial gases company and I I did the 401k type um, investment planning for the future, uh, stock market, long-term stock market stuff. It was never on my radar to get involved in real estate. And then after three years of working, I, I took a year off and I completed a master's degree. In 2013. And that opened my eyes to real estate investing through the coursework. I returned to the industrial gas business as an employee. I worked another eight years as a full-time employee and I began investing in real estate on nights and weekends. Um, I'm proud to say actually that after eight more years, 12 years total in that business, just last month, I finally pivoted from a, a corporate job into uh, full-time real estate. Um, and I also accepted a role working as the executive director of the real estate lab in Allentown. So it's been a fun ride, but that's a little bit of a background about how I got here.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And you're very young at that. So to be able to accomplish all that in a very short term is is quite amazing. So thank you. Today we are going to talk about some of those strategies that you've used in your real estate endeavors to improve those underperforming assets. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about planning an exit strategy. And I've asked Matt to join me to share his wealth of knowledge that he's gained throughout his years of investing. So we're going to just jump right into some of my questions. So tell us a little bit more about how you actually said, I'm going to get started investing. How did you dive in? What was the thing that just like clicked in your head? It's time to do this. How did you start?
1: Yeah. So um, that that's a, a great question. And I- Maybe I could tell a little bit of a story. Sure. So I actually stumbled across real estate investing um, through my love of the Spanish language and traveling, which don't seem like they're correlated at all, but uh, bear with me for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) So during college, I lived in Spain for six months and and, uh, I wanted to turn to Spain after graduation and I wanted to pursue further education in Spain. I just love the language, the people. I love traveling. Um, I didn't have the means to do that. I wasn't very um, financially savvy. Um, so I sought various scholarships and, and ways to afford a master's degree. I hadn't even paid off my undergrad yet. I, I had been working for three years and, and real estate wasn't even on my mind. But then when I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship um, to IE Business School, I completed an MBA. I did it all in Spanish and I got exposed to finance. And And that's when my eyes really became open um, to the, the power of real estate. We barely touched on real estate in that curriculum. It's an MBA curriculum. It's meant for bonds and stocks and, and, and trading. And But there was a small portion on real estate and real estate finance, and it just it, it clicked. I think that was in April, and the program was another eight months. And I just knew from that moment that I needed to do real estate. I understood it. It was something tangible. Uh, it was something that I could see and touch. And and so I just I knew at that moment, I remember where I was and and, and how it, it just it made so much sense to me. Um and, and so it was actually it wasn't even in the United States where I, I understood that I wanted to be a real estate investor, it was overseas in that coursework. So and from that point on I I knew once I got back to the States that I had to do this, it made so much sense to me. And I I always had a um I was born in the Lehigh Valley. I I I always had a place in my heart and in my mind for, uh, uh renovating the housing stock locally around me, uh, just growing up in the area. So I combined those two things. And when I, I got back in 2014, that's when I really got started.
0: Wow. That's awesome. So how long have you been investing in total?
1: Yep. So, uh, yeah, um, that was a good transition. I, I bought my first property in, in 2014. Um, it was a single family home on the East side of Allentown.
0: Okay. Tell me a little bit about. Are you only investing in Allentown? Do you invest in other areas? Tell me how you chose the Lehigh Valley.
1: So the Lehigh Valley as a market was uh, simple for me because I was it was in my backyard. I was working locally here in the Lehigh Valley, so that that was why. And then Allentown was uh, it, it was a market that at the time and still is in many ways a rental market. And I had always wanted my business to be about impacting the community longer term, I wasn't interested in short-term profits or flipping to try to get a profit quickly. I I had always wanted to be a long-term investor and and someone who is invested in the community, creating value for the community long-term. So um, in Allentown and in other parts of the Valley, that's, that's um, that's what owners do. And that's why I chose Allentown. I um, mean, also I was living right there too um, at the time. I've since moved to the other side of the valley, but um, that's why I chose Allentown. It was it was it, it was just a, a good market. It is a good market to to help families find housing.
0: Okay, so besides Allentown, where else do you actually own properties now?
1: Bethlehem, Easton, uh, basically the Greater Lehigh Valley. Um, I'm looking at some deals on the the fringes, of the western Lehigh Valley as well, um, north, um, so Lehigh, Northampton, Berks counties, uh, potentially Schuylkill counties. Yep.
0: Okay. So how do you buy these properties? Do you buy them cash? Do you buy them with leverage? A little bit of both?
1: Um, a, a little bit of both, but usually with uh, with cash initially and then uh, looking to refinance. Um, so basically a, my company is a direct home buying company and we help homeowners whose houses don't necessarily fit the traditional listing model. Um, and we help those sellers save on fees and commissions and um, avoiding costly repairs. Um, And also the parade of buyers through the traditional listing methods. And um, we give the sellers a firm closing date with little chance of the deal falling through. um, Or like a a traditional buyer could potentially back out. My company doesn't do that. So for for those reasons, uh, sellers get a speedy and efficient sales process with my company on their timeline, not on the buyers. And so for that reason, oftentimes the purchase is in cash, um, but it doesn't have to be.
0: So you're always going direct to seller. In other words, you're not buying stuff on market. Am I correct in saying that?:
1: That's correct. it's It's rare that that I'm buying properties that are listed on the market uh, just because I've built relationships with with neighbors over the years um, that I can speak to them directly, just through the various ways that I either reach out or through referrals. so it's it's almost never through the MLS actually that I buy.
0: Okay. And what made you decide originally that that was going to be the way that you were going to go to invest? I,
1: I I saw the, I I was working with a couple of, of realtors and, um, I, I just saw how I I learned, and also in business school, I learned that business is a people business. And so I wanted to work directly with the seller because I thought that, um, with, with fewer levels of different agents or other people between me and the customer, I could serve the customer's needs best by talking to them directly. Um, That doesn't necessarily work for for everyone, but I'm a local person. I'm from here and I want to talk to my neighbors. I happen to like working with people and and meeting others. So um, especially people that I have an invested interest for the long term next to their property. So why why not talk to them? Right. So that's my mentality there.
0: This must take you an awful lot of time if you're doing it yourself. So, how much time were you committing initially when you first got started? I mean, I know, I'm sure now, without the corporate job, right? You can invest mm-hmm. full time. But part of that, when you were working, how like how much time were you dedicating to this every night?
1: Yeah, so it's. I'm glad you asked that question. So, as a newer father, I, I thought that uh, um, I had a lot of time before, or uh, you know, I thought that, <laughs> or I thought that I was busy before, I should say. And and yeah. now, uh, now it's on a different level. So, from <laughs> here, um. <laughs> um no, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's about, uh, I was, it was a balancing act. I was, I was balancing the corporate job with trying to work with sellers, trying to meet them. Well, can I meet you at noon on Wednesday? Uh, no. Okay, what about, and so it's about, it's about shifting and trying to be flexible while also needing the person's needs. So, and, and also too, when I was getting started out, it was one or two or three houses and so it was. A, it was more manageable to find a fourth and also take care of those activities. As you know, um, as things have grown, uh, it's it's not possible to be involved in every repair decision or conversation with with tenant or um w- or when a transaction buy or sell. So um, I have uh I have gotten myself out of some of those details by using your team and the Empire team, uh, to to handle the the management of the property and then also on on selling. So.
0: Okay, fantastic.
1: I don't know if that answered your question, but it's it. It was it, it initially. It was a um, it. It wasn't as scalable because I was doing everything myself. It was probably ten to twenty hours per week, nights and weekends. And um, now I'm 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 doing things uh, more efficiently because I've done this for so many more years. But it's also now full time for me.
0: Okay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So what types of properties are you buying other than the ones direct to seller? Are they single family, multifamily, commercial? What, what are you buying?
1: Uh, good question. All residential, um, no type of commercial or self-storage or anything like that, um, or mobile homes, manufactured homes, nothing of that nature. Only residential uh, properties. Historically, I'd say up until the last year or two, I really specialized in single family homes. Uh, but over the last couple of years, I've focused more on multifamily, at, at, at least two two units or more. Um, it's basically between two and six units. and I also do still buy single families, but anything really up to six units, anything larger than that, I don't really do right now.
0: And why was it initially single families? Was it about the, a better deal or was it like a condensed amount of risk? Well, what made you actually say it's going to be single families and it's going to be rentals?
1: Part of it at the time um, was just really what I could afford and get financing for. Um, that, that was how I was thinking at that time. But, um, as, as the business grew and matured, I also saw that I was, um, the, the single family home, um, the the end buyer for a single family home is a family and, and families and a focus on family has always been important to me. I, I wanted to, uh, my end buyer to be someone who could live there, and and a lot of times too, there are programs to help those families afford homes. A lot of first time home buyer type programs, and so that was always something that was um, that that resonated with me. So I wanted the end buyer to be a family that would live in the home whenever it was time uh, to sell the property. So that that was why I started with single families. Um, but now after COVID and other things, I, I do like the cash flow a little bit more, and I like uh, of the multifamilies, and I like the one roof one boiler, just one system servicing the needs of multiple families. Because at a certain point, you, you start to pull your hair out with how many roofs there are and leaks and, and, and it becomes, you, you want to maintain a good uh, living condition and living environment for your residents. And so it's a little bit easier at scale uh, in multifamily to provide that good, solid uh, living experience that, that we want for all of our residents.
0: Okay. And you said you stay away from commercial Industrial yes. and all those asset classes. Tell me why.
1: I. It's a good question. I, I I have just seen, and and there are a lot of investors that that do very well in those spaces. For for me, like I said before, it was about investing in the Lehigh Valley, improving the housing stock. That was something that was important to me, but also just a more fundamental level is that housing is a basic human need. And I wanted to, I wanted to provide that. I, and I didn't know when my business was starting how uh, difficult COVID was going to be on industrial properties, commercial properties. I, uh, February of 2020, I, I almost had uh, a commercial property under contract with two commercial units, and, and then those were shut down. And so I, I'm, I'm glad for um, the focus on residential. That's just my personal investment philosophy. It's not. It's not that it's best for anyone else or better than any other way, but I just wanted to invest in basic human needs. And I saw a need for the housing stock here in the Lehigh Valley to be improved. So that's why I went after that space.
0: Okay, great. So tell me a little bit more about how you actually found these properties.
1: So um, as I I started to get into, and we can dig into this, I, I have been reaching out to my neighbors for... Uh, the past seven years, um, directly. A lot of times, it's via letter to introduce myself. In the beginning, uh, I was handwriting all of them and saying, "Hey, you know, I own XYZ property a couple blocks from you," <laughs> just as a point of introduction to introduce myself. Um, I hand wrote, I had handwritten thousands of letters, um, which I don't do anymore. But I really wanted to take a personalized approach uh, to to reaching out to my neighbors. Now I use a form letter and things, but it's 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 direct mail. Um, I also have a website. Uh, Perhaps we could link it to the show notes. Um, And and so neighbors find my website through uh, just through their own Google searches about uh, selling their house. And then I also do pay-per-click activities and other type of online optimization stuff. That started over the last six months. Um, And then also referrals. People know... I, I can think of probably seven or eight referrals off the top of my mind where I worked with the homeowner, they were pleased, they had a family member or friend, and re- they referred me to that person. And then I bought that house too, just because they were so pleased with how the experience went. So it's it's all those things. It's it's uh, it's SEO, online presence, uh, m- direct mail marketing, referrals, uh, relationships. It's it's all of the things. <laughs> so
0: You had said earlier that this is a people business. Do you feel like people skills was the thing that really helped you go from this letter to the actual acquisition stage it, it's it's about so
1: the short answer is yes and i can explain why it's about people feeling comfortable and that you're a trustworthy person that you're not trying to just rip them off or that you're um that you're a real person it's not some type of scam so in the beginning it's you just have to cut through the what are all the doubts and then you just address those doubts with the person as an example Oh, thank you so much for responding to my letter. I'm sure you probably get these. You probably think it's a scam uh but it's it's not. I'm actually a real person you know I'd love to meet you and talk about your property and you just address the things that you know they're asking and some people just come out and say it <laughs> and so it's very <laughs> obvious what they're thinking and other people you have to you have to just let them know that you understand that they're calling a letter and who is this person on the other side of the phone it it's at the end of the day it's a business it's about it's about Adding value, creating value for other people, solving problems, and so by by helping the other person feel comfortable, you're you're already getting further than many other people do just by identifying what they're feeling. We're we like to think that we're all rational, you know, people, but a lot of our uh, inner workings are driven by emotion, and so you need to address those those fears, those insecurities that the other person has before they're even willing to talk to you. They don't they don't want to know what you're offering for their house they want to know is this can I do business with this person can I trust this person so no one's going to sell their house to someone they don't trust it just doesn't work that way so um, it's those are some of the tips and tricks that I think about when I'm talking to someone for the first time I really try to put myself in their shoes it sounds so cliche but what are they feeling what are they experiencing here and how do I how do I resolve those insecurities
0: the episode will continue in just a moment As an investor, we know it's important to stay on top of market trends and real estate opportunities that add value to your portfolio. We also know that having a trusted source of reliable information to help you stay a step ahead of other investors is critical to your success. If you're interested in having these types of resources, as well as access to me and my team, I invite you to join the Empire Investment Club, a free service that gives you an easier way to make sense of today's and tomorrow's real estate opportunities. As a member of the Empire Investment Club, you'll get access to relevant resources and investment-focused experiences, such as live interactive webinars, market trend presentations, and investor socials designed to equip you with what you need to succeed. So whether you're an active investor, passive investor, a combination of both, or just starting out, the club is where you'll get what you need to build a portfolio you love. To join, just head over to jenniferdehesus.com, sign up, and we'll see you in the club, where everyone's on a journey to becoming a better investor. It's really interesting because when you think about these mail campaigns or, you know, I think about the, you know, the yard signs or the signs that are stuck to trees that yeah, say, we buy houses, you know, yeah. <laughs> in those yeah. flashing neon lights, it, right. it, it makes me just, and I'm assuming it does to the consumer as well. It just, it looks like it's going to be an aggressive sales pitch. So to hear you say that it's not at all about that, even though you start out with a mail campaign, it's actually very interesting. It's a very interesting twist to, you know, the general mail campaign.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, I look at it as two different parts. There's the marketing side, which is the attention getting side. It's the, it's the grab your attention. There's so much clutter in all of our inboxes and YouTube and, and social media and all this all this demand on our attention. So you have to, as a marketer, you have to get through all that and you have to quickly help a potential customer see how you are going to solve a, maybe a problem they do or don't have. That's the marketing side and that's the, the side that can get a bad rap, so to speak, or give a, a bad impression. But after that, once the person calls, then it's about the human side, the understanding what they need, what they want. And another way that I I look to diffuse any type of uh, the if if someone someone they call one of these signs they think oh you know I, I can't even trust this person I think they're gonna I think they're gonna rip me off that's another one that I hear and I try to just I, I try to be honest with people in every regard but I just say look I might not be the buyer for your house and that's okay if can we have a five minute conversation and, and can we just agree that if at the end of the conversation I'm not the ideal buyer for you. Are you okay with that? And of course they are because it's just an exploratory conversation. I think after you get through that marketing, that tip of the spear, just to get someone to call at that point, you can really have a conversation with someone and get to know them and what's going on for them. What is the issue that they have so that you can work with them to try to solve that issue. And most of the time I'm not the buyer uh, for every seller and that's okay too. Um, it's it's okay, and and that's how I lead in with these conversations because I don't want anyone to feel pressured or that um that they're being ripped off or you know or 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 whatever they might think because there's um I try to just diffuse all those things on the front end so that we could just talk person to person so,
0: great, that's great yeah. tips and tricks that you got there. um actually, this is a great segment to then you know, of all these people that you're sourcing, right? So mm-hmm. you're sourcing all these deals, right? You're doing these mailers at that moment. You haven't yet decided if this is the right house for you. So right. how do you transition to, I got you on the phone. How do you know now it's the right type of investment purchase for you?
1: Yeah. So I, th- there are there are a couple more, but there's the three main things that I look at to decide are value, sustainability, and if it's a long-term hold. So I'll, I'll break those apart. So value um i'm looking for i'm always looking for an opportunity to create value for a seller and a future resident who will be looking for a great place to live with their family so as an example uh how, how would i find value and what does that mean uh let's say a house needs a lot of repairs and let's say that a seller can't or doesn't want to do those repairs for whatever reason um i would take on that burden for them and handle any cleanouts um, or anything else that they don't want to do. There could be a myriad of reasons why they don't want to do that. It could be, uh, it's too difficult for them, family heirlooms, or maybe they have too many belongings. They just don't want to think about it. Um, maybe they're moving to another area and it's just too much, or maybe they lost a job or they, they just need, they, they can't focus on it right now. Um, so there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Once those repairs are done, the the house is practically brand new. Um, and and you know, because Empire Construction does a lot of the turnovers. So that so, also adds value to the, the the family who's going to be renting that home. It's new finishes. It's a new kitchen. It's new windows. It's new flooring. And compared to many of the other homes in the neighborhood, um, this is going to be a step above. And so we're going to create value for the family that's going to be living there. So we help the seller deal with things that they don't want to deal with. And the property probably couldn't even be sold in a traditional way because buyers want the they want the property done. They want it beautiful. They want it nice. Sure. Well, if a seller can't do that, that that opens up an opportunity to create value for that person and then do the repairs so that a, a family can live in that home and have a nicer home than the rest of the homes. <laughs> so sure. that's, that's how I create value. And um, that's that's one of the criteria. The next one is sustainability. And it, it has to be, the, the property that I buy has to be set up to be viable for the long-term. Um, and what I mean by that is, so financially, the rental income needs to more than exceed what the mortgage and operating expenses are in order for me to be able to keep and hold on to the property and repair the property and keep it in that good condition. Um, and then lastly, I mentioned long-term hold. I think with at least a five-year time horizon, for all of the deals that I look to buy, um, and so I need to look at the area. Is the area a place that I want to be invested in for at least five years? What's What's the neighborhood like? What are the schools like? Are there jobs coming in? Are there jobs leaving? Uh, what's going on in that neighborhood? And uh, because I don't look to flip or do anything short term for a quick buck, that's not that's never been my model. I have to think, okay, is this an area that I want to be longer term? And uh, I make my decision based on that.
0: Those are great points. Thank you. So in regards to assessing the property, I assume that there's also a really critical financial calculation that you're doing. And you hear all kinds of things, right? You hear people talking about the Burr method, the one percent method, the you know the ARV method, cap rates. What do you use financially to assess? You don't have to give me necessarily all of the keys to the castle, but just curious, what are you using to financially assess the property's viability?
1: So uh, that that's a great question, and um, I look at um, I, I think the way I want to answer that is when I look at properties, I track properties that are sold on the MLS and I look and see, and then I, 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 I'm always downtown um, and then I go look and I see that a lot of times owners that that pay closer to or even above market value, they're unable to then reinvest in the property because they likely overpaid uh, for the property. Then they also have costs to exit that property uh, for selling costs. So they're reluctant to do maintenance that is not a position I ever ever want to be in. I take my commitment to the residents that live in my homes very seriously. Mm-hmm. So, in order to provide a uh, an above average or even excellent living environment for the residents in my properties, I need to be at I need to be below value when I purchase the property and do all of the repairs that the seller wasn't able to do, so that I can afford to maintain that property longer term. So, generally, um, I I like to be. Maybe and it, it depends, but the way that I look at it is I don't look at a strictly cash flow number because um, that can change over time. We've seen some rent growth recently and things. I, I really look at for the smaller properties, what can the property trade at today? And then I like to be maybe as a con- as a convenience for doing all of the repairs and maintaining a good unit, maybe ten percent below that, or maybe in a good case, fifteen percent below. Uh, what the the appraised value is so that I can ensure that the family that's living there has all of the resources that they need uh, to to have a good living experience. Um, so I, I usually look for, for the space that I'm in. Now, industrial investors or commercial investors, they're not going to look at it like that. Uh, but for small residential, that's how I look at it because the comps are the value. Uh, that's the valuation. So I try to be just under the comps and then it, it allows me to take care of the unit long term.
0: Okay. And I assume for a general rule of thumb, it's you're kind of assessing it based on, you know, how low can I buy it? Plus my renovation costs, I still should not be paying over market at that point, right? I should be just around market after I add in my capital improvements or renovations, correct?
1: Correct. And I I explain that transparently to the seller because I, and I tell them, look, you you, you could probably get a higher offer somewhere else, but I, I look to take care of the residents longer term i need that margin and i one of the conversations i have very regularly with sellers is i can't take the appraised value subtract the construction costs and make that your offer because there's a lot of risk in construction there's financing costs there's refinancing costs there's all these costs and i can't i can't do that and if it were if it were viable i, I say it nicely but if, if it were viable you as the seller would do it I, I can't come in and make those repairs for you, at, and then so purchase price plus repairs equals appraised value. I, I can't do that. No one will do that <laughs> because right. there's there's no reason to take that risk. So sure. that's that's why I explain what the margin is uh, to the sellers, and I say, look, I need to be able to be incentivized to do this this uh, these repairs on your behalf, but also to take care of the property long term, which I said. So that that's how I discuss it with sellers, and I, th- I think it makes sense for them. Um, and a lot of times they're not interested in doing the repairs anyway, and it's a win-win for everyone. And plus, they know that if they list the property, they're going to get low-balled by investors, probably worse than me. Someone might try to flip it. They're not even invested long-term, and then they have to pay a realtor commission. So in a lot of cases, it makes sense to work directly with the buyer. They're going to get an offer right about what they would anyway. They're aware of the condition of their property, and uh, then they don't have to deal with contracts falling through and realtor fees and all these other fees. They just take the, what they would get and do it simply with me.
0: Plus I imagine the time frame is shorter too, right? So oh, yes. if they really are in some kind of distress situation, it would be great to be able to complete it quickly.
1: That's correct. That's correct. And so when I explain those things and a lot of times it's at the kitchen table with a family and mm-hmm. I explain these things to them and, uh, I give them the option. They're, they're free to, to list the property on the market. But a lot of times they, they, a lot of times they do. And a lot of times they, they don't, it just, it just depends on what they want. And like I said, it's about, that's what business is. It's about people. I I take a no pressure approach. Look, if if there's a better option for you, who you just met me from a letter, who am I to say that, that you should do something else? I just give them the options and then they, they can choose. So
0: it's it's funny you say at the kitchen table that reminds me back in the day when we used to uh, present offers to people face to face. And then, you know, technology took over (laughs) and now there's no human connection anymore because, you know, we've got we've got all kinds of technology. But that's interesting. It reminds me of that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. So we talked a lot about how you acquire the properties, decide what properties you want to buy, how you do your analysis, uh, make your final decision. Let's now, you've got the property, right? Let's say, matter of fact, let's even say you've got the property, you've done the renovations. Now you've got tenants in there. What are you doing to gauge the performance of the property from this point forward?
1: Yep, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, the I look at what's my so I, I'm looking at three things: what's my return on equity, my return on investment, and my IRR. So IRR is a little bit more complex. I won't get into that too much, but just know that it exists. The return on equity that I'm looking at, and and this is something that I'm looking at. I'd say quarterly. How much equity is in the property? Meaning, and when I say equity, what's the appraised value or what could I sell the property for less what the mortgage amount is. That difference is the equity. And I look at what's my annual income from this property after all expenses divided by the net equity in the property. And the reason why that's important is because after six or seven years or eight years, um, if a property, the mortgage has been paid down uh, and the value has gone up, it might be time to reposition that equity into another property. Some investors want to just pay off their mortgage. That that was never I never really understood that. That wasn't my my model. I wanted to take the equity in one property and then go renovate two more. Uh, because my mission is to renovate the Lehigh Valley housing stock, um, in addition to other things. So if if there's equity sitting in one property, that means I'm not doing my job. <laughs> so right. um, I look at my return on equity. I'm also um, looking at my return on investment. So what was my initial investment in the property? And what is the income of the property net after all expenses over divided by that that net that that initial investment? And so that's that's somewhat of a the, the the return on equity is a longer term view. Return on investment is more right now or in the first couple of years. Um, And then the IRR, I'm just looking at that basically factors in my capex and inflation and uh, the appreciation of the property and all it's the, it's basically the full life cycle return of the asset. So um, those are the metrics that I use.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of my two-part segment with Matthew Pizan. I know you must've gotten a lot out of today's show because math is an incredible wealth of knowledge. So please make sure that you stay tuned to our next episode and until next time, take care. For more information about how Jennifer can help you plan, develop, and manage a strong real estate investment portfolio, visit growingempires.com.